The gospel lesson is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our text this morning is Psalm 94. I, didn't pick, I did not pick the text because today was 9-11, but there are certain resonances for sure. Um, and it's appropriate text in a lot of ways, uh, especially because we live in a time of religiously inspired warfare. We live in a time of unprecedented uh, persecution of the church worldwide. And this is certainly a psalm to address that, among other things. And even if some of these big picture global things don't touch us directly, though they have touched our fellow countrymen and our brethren, our brothers and sisters around the world, nevertheless, if they haven't touched us, this is still a time of confusion. It's a time of spiritual malaise and challenge in the West. And there are very few people who escape the trauma of the age with their souls unscarred. In our text, Psalm 94, in a very pointed and bracing way, teaches us how to pray in such times as these. It teaches us what to do while we wait and while we look for God to answer and to act. And so we'll make three points. They're there in the outline in the bulletin. Appeal, exhortation, and consolation. First, then, is the appeal. So the cry at the beginning of Psalm 94 is raw and startling and direct and maybe even offensive to some. The Lord is a God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. So forceful is the opening of the text that vengeance is literally in the plural. The Lord is a God of vengeances. And the plural is a way of intensifying the idea. In a heightened sense, God avenges. 
So, the psalmist is insisting that this is basic to God. Of course, for us, at least for some, it, it's, it makes us cringe a little bit. It's a word which carries a lot of negative baggage for us. And obviously, the psalmist doesn't feel the same way. One of the things I find myself always saying to people is, be careful that you are not universalizing your post-enlightenment, Western, 20th century moral sensibilities onto the whole world. As if you're superior. As if a word that makes you cringe should make everybody in every culture everywhere cringe. We have to be very careful about that. We have to have our sensibilities, our intuitions, reshaped sometimes by Holy Scripture. Moderns, especially Americans, we're so individualistic, right? There's a sense in which Americans say, well, I don't like that. I skipped that part of the Bible. I don't believe that part. They're unwilling to say, maybe my instincts are wrong. Maybe I should let the text be sovereign over me. Maybe I should let the text change my emotional life. This is one of those texts where you're going to have to answer that question. For the psalmist, as throughout Scripture, vengeance is not malicious. It's not hateful. It simply means God can be called upon to restore order, to restore justice. Especially when all the other lawful means have failed, as is the case here. It's a quality It's a quality that God ascribes to himself. In Deuteronomy 32, God says this, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a passage that's cited twice in the New Testament. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is his because it's rooted in his being. It's an outward reflection of his righteousness, of his inner rectitude, of his goodness and his truth and his integrity. It's a manifestation of the holy love that God is. Now, this idea of vengeance has some synonyms that are used throughout Scripture. It's basically justice or judgment, or retribution, or the restoration of order. These terms all mean roughly the same thing. Setting the world aright, vindicating God's name and his people. And it's not only essential to God, it comes into view especially when we talk about the Lord as king. Vengeance is a royal prerogative. It's part, you can see this in the text, it's part of what's entailed in calling God, as verse 2 does, the judge of all the earth. And so it's basic. The one who is the judge of all the earth is going to have to avenge. But notice something else here at the opening of this poem. Notice that calling upon God to judge, to avenge, means that he shine forth, the text says, or rise up. 
So when the Lord God shines forth, he's making his glorious being, his holy presence known. He's revealing who he is in his infinite splendor. He manifests his majesty when he shines forth. And so vengeance then is an appearing. It's a coming. It's an advent. It's a shining forth of God. And when that appearing comes, vengeance or just judgment follows. It's just what happens when the God who is light appears. In much the same way that a fire will purify gold or burn up stubble. When God manifests himself, vengeance follows. And so this is what we mean when we say that vengeance is an outer manifestation of his inner integrity. This is very important because we, want, we don't want to see these things as um, temper tantrums or spasms or just things that are detached from God's character. We want to see God's works, what he does, as rooted in his being, who he is. And the text makes it very clear that it is because it's what happens when the God who is God shines. And so, it turns out we can't rid ourselves of this notion without ridding ourselves of the Christian God. And this is not simply an Old Testament sentiment. Right? No one less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the gospel lesson this morning, the gospel lesson from Luke 18, says that God will avenge his elect who cry to him day and night. The parable, the gospel text is a parable that says, are you disheartened by all the injustice? Personally received injustice. Just unjust judgments, unjust decrees. And Jesus commends this persistent praying of this widow and says he will bring about justice. In some translations, as he will avenge his elect. But the situation of consistent injustice challenges our faith, does it not? That's why the Lord asks in that parable, but will the Son of Man find faith when he comes? Because injustice and wickedness and evil that goes on and on and on grinds the people of God down. So Jesus himself commends the praying for this shining forth. It's essentially what you do when you pray, hallowed be thy name. And so the psalmist cries here in this text for vengeance, which as verse 2 says, you can see this in verse 2, pay back the proud what they deserve. Notice this, vengeance is not overreaction. It's not overcompensation, it's exact justice. Pay back the proud what they deserve. In verse 23, it's called repayment. It repays what's deserved, nothing more, nothing less. But here, it's painfully delayed, as it often is, isn't it? The text says, how long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant or celebrate? 
This how long, we've looked at it before. It's scattered throughout the Psalms and the prophets. It's the basic cry of the saints in a broken world. How long in, in periods of prolonged suffering or unanswered prayer. It's a kind of hopeless cry of hope. Enough is enough, the psalmist says. Now is the time for God to act. Arise, shine forth, avenge, repay. This has to be something of, it's not everything, but if this dimension is lacking from our prayer lives, then something vital is missing. Right? This ethos cannot be taken away. There's a, a third of the Psalms partake of this spirit. And so this cry goes up. And we see the reasons for it in verse 4 that the The evil are boasting. And in verse 5, it gets closer to home. It says, they crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. The church is God's inheritance. And so the situation in the psalm, it turns out, is one where God's people are being crushed and oppressed by political powers. We're not sure exactly where. It could be with one of the exiles. It could be other, some other situation, but it's a grievous situation. You look at verse 20, down to, toward the end of the psalm. It says, can a corrupt throne or a corrupt government be aligned with you? A throne which brings misery by decree or by law. So the cry for vengeance comes from this situation. The people of God are being oppressed by a corrupt and a wicked state that imposes corrupt and wicked laws. And so this is, again, no prayer for personal vengeance. It's not a call to take up arms. The psalmist prays for God to act. For God to avenge his own property, his own purchased possession, his own inheritance. It is always good when your prayers get to that point. When you are telling God, this is your inheritance. This is your property. This is your problem. This is your name, your justice, your integrity that's at stake here. Not mine. It's yours. You shine forth. You act. The Psalms are always doing that. This is the cry of the church in Syria. And the cry of the church in Iraq. And in too many other places to mention. And if you come across a psalm like this in your Bible. And you get to it and you take a look at it and say. Well, this psalm doesn't touch down in my life. I suggest pray it for them. Right? We, we, we ought not to think of the Bible as texts which if they don't apply to me directly, I can skip. Because you're a member of the body of Christ. And when a member suffers, we all suffer. Pray Psalm 94 for the church. This is an all too real cry for too many people on this very morning. What's going on? This crushing oppression, the text says, consists of slaying the widow and the foreigner and killing the fatherless, banding together against the righteous, verse 21, condemning them to death. The very ones whom God's law singles out for protection, widows, aliens, fatherless, they're being trampled, built into the heart of God's justice, into the heart of his law, are these tender mercies for the weak, 
and for the marginalized. All of this is just being set aside by this regime of injustice and violence. And it's out of that crucible that this psalm emerges. And what's part of the pain in these situations is that they seem to do it with impunity. At least that's how the powerful view it. You can look at this in verse 7. They say, the Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. I mean, how many decades after decades does the church in the Middle East have to be splattered between one power and another? Trampled and then trampled and then trampled again. God is, from the oppressor's point of view, irrelevant. He either doesn't see or he doesn't care or he isn't able to do anything about it. From their point of view, the text says he doesn't even take notice. So the second point is the exhortation. The psalmist here, now he picks up the idea that God's not paying attention. And he says in verse 8, take notice, you senseless ones among the people. Here the idea is, you think God doesn't take notice? You take notice. You take notice. He calls these oppressors and those who agree with them fools. Which is it, Fools in the Bible means morally darkened. It doesn't mean dumb or lacking you know, ability, mental ability. Fools are often very well credentialed. They're often people of great ability and accomplishment. And here, they're people who believe the world has no order, that everything just reduces to power. And to instruct them, the psalmist asks this series of questions, four questions in the middle of the text, and the implied answer is no, of course not. Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? In other words, if you you can see, and you can hear, and you can discipline and be taught, then surely God can see and hear and teach and discipline the nations. It's kind of an, an argument from creation and providence, saying that creation and providence teach us That God is, that he sees, and that he does hear the groanings of his people. He doesn't hear them on our timetable, though, and that's the frustrating thing, isn't it? I was speaking to someone just this week, a a pastor, who has a person in their congregation who lost a daughter on 9-11. And, uh, you know, he wanted to talk to me about how to frame this in the light of the sovereignty of God. And how he would handle this and I said well you have to one way one way to come at this is to remember what God did with Israel I mean they were not spared calamities or disasters they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and then God decided he would answer their cries it's an astonishing thing that sort of has to be, I mean, I suppose it can be discouraging, but it does reshape our, our time frames for viewing things. They suffer two calamitous exiles. 
Nevertheless, God, the scriptures affirm that God was faithful, that he protects, and that he doesn't forsake his inheritance. So, not only does God see and he hears, but there's a moral order, the text is saying, and this animalistic injustice is not going to have the final word. The gods of Egypt are going to be overthrown. The gods of Babylon are going to be overthrown. The gods of Assyria are going to be overthrown. The Roman Empire is going to be overthrown. The Greeks are going to be overthrown. The the everlasting kingdom of God is going to be established, is established, and will stand. Now, it's true for an acutely suffering person, even that can seem like cold comfort. But that is the gospel. It's resurrection comfort. It's long-term comfort. It doesn't promise us that we won't go into Egypt or we won't be exiled or that our whole country, like northern Iraq, will be, won't be scorched. We are people of the resurrection. No resurrection, no eschatological glory, no comfort. So, not only does God see, not only does God know, he knows before men act. Verse 11 says he knows all human plans and he knows that they're futile. So the psalmist, is, it's not just critique here, though. He starts to give instruction to the wise in verse 12. He says, blessed is the one you discipline, O Lord, and you teach from your law. Because the law is going to reshape the way we look at the world. God disciplines and teaches the nations, the psalm says, but he wants to discipline and teach you his inheritance. And that happens with the law. And in doing so, the psalm says, he gives us relief. But if you're suffering, you need relief. And you need it now. You can't wait 400 years for it. You need it in the midst of the days of trouble. That's what, the, that's what the psalm says. The days that the psalmist finds himself in. Remember, he is in a situation where his nation is under an unjust, tyrannical, murderous, bloodthirsty regime. And what he is saying is, I have found relief in the middle of this. And I found it because God is teaching me out of his law. And he's doing that, giving us relief until a pit is dug for the wicked. You'll see that in the text. This is what the law does. This is what Holy Scripture does. And this is what we must do in the midst of confusing and disorienting. And especially times of suffering and times of injustice. You know Psalm 119, that long and that magnificent ode of praise to the law. It's a testimony to this. It says in in Psalm 119, the law enables our endurance. The law orients us to the end. The law reminds us we are sojourners. The law makes us wise in the midst of fools. It gives us relief because God talks to you there. God speaks to you there. God manifests his presence there. It gives you relief as we are waiting for him to shine forth in fullness. And so we go there to have our hope nourished, just like Israel's hope was nourished on this word in the midst of hundreds of years of calamity. There's almost nothing as harrowing as the history of Israel. Romans 15 puts it this way. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance, And the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. 
There's often no hope to be found if you just scan the circumstances. Either of your own life or your own relations, your own nation. Hope for us is always in the risen Christ who speaks to us in Holy Scripture. And so verse 5 in the psalm said that there was this wicked throne that was oppressing God's inheritance. But out of the law, the psalmist answers in verse 14, the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Sometimes it seems like he has. This is the how long cry. Read Habakkuk chapter 1. The, the, the prophet is watching the people in Israel being carried. He's watching the city being burned. He's watching the temple be destroyed. He's watching the people go into exile. Old men, women, and children. Some of them being carried off by fish hooks in their mouth. What the Babylonians would use to drag them into exile. And the prophet has a, has a beef with God. Where he wants to know how he can look on this. How he can tolerate this. Yeah, we're, we're, we're Israel. Yeah, we're not perfect. Yeah, we've had sins. But these Babylonians? These jihadists? We're better than they are, that's for sure. What's with the judgment on us? So it doesn't appear. Now we stand back from the story and we say... You know, the words the Babylonian exile roll off my tongue perhaps too easily. But we can say this. God did not forsake his inheritance. He's constantly killing and raising his people from the dead. I will never leave you. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. For us, death is the vestibule to glory. God never forsakes his inheritance. And so the law tells the psalmist in verse 15 that judgment will again be founded on righteousness. And the upright in heart will follow after it. Corrupt thrones, corrupt laws, they will not endure. They do great damage. Sure, and we must not trivialize that. But their end is sure. If you step back in the broad sweep of things, it's a, it's a story of nations and empires opposing the king and being dashed. They are not going to be allied with and they are not going to be allowed to coexist with God's kingdom. History is littered with their ruins. So finally, finally, consolation. Look at verse 16. He asked two questions. Um, And I I think here there's no answer except the Lord. He says, who will rise up for me against the wicked? Well, the way the psalm opens, it's pretty clear he doesn't think anyone's going to rise up and help him. Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? And then he gives this personal testimony. He says, unless the Lord had given me help. Notice that it's in the past tense. So there's kind of two things happening here. The psalmist is crying out for future vengeance. He wants the nation avenged. He wants the avenger dealt with. And it's important that you learn to pray for justice too. Not personal vengeance, not peevish, petty concerns, but that you pray for the legitimate reordering of things at the hand of God. 
So he wants vengeance. But he has already, the text says, been given help. He's already been saved from death and supported by God's unfailing love, probably through the word. The text says, in the midst of my anxiety. Now these anxieties here are about this injustice, this this oppression that he's seeing, that he's lamenting. He says, in the midst of that, God's consolation brought me joy. This is a remarkable assertion here. It it can almost sound trite. We're supposed to believe that you're watching the fatherless be murdered? That the people are oppressed by a corrupt throne and you're telling us that somehow God has helped you? And he's brought you consolation and joy? You know, vengeance is a consoling reality. It brings serenity and joy even in the midst of grief. He believes that God is going to avenge the situation. And through his word, God has somehow mysteriously given him comfort now. I'm always reminded here of this mystery, which is is on full display in our Lord Jesus, where the text tells us that he was a man of grief and acquainted with sorrow. And yet at the same time, Hebrews 1 tells us he was anointed with the oil of joy above all his companions. Jesus is the most sorrowful and the most joyful human being who's ever lived at the same time. And something like that is being reflected in the psalmist's emotional life. He is saying, even now, because there's a God who will set the world to right, That means, and because that God is broken into time in Christ, even now, hope is stronger than despair and joy is stronger than sorrow. Love is stronger than death. And the risen Jesus is stronger than his oppressors. And he never forsakes his inheritance. If his inheritance is plundered, they become a whole burnt offering to the living God. That's all the persecutors can do. Right, is they can send you in to that glorious company of martyrs who are at the throne of God in the book of Revelation chapter 6. That's it. And what are those martyrs praying for? Vengeance. Oh, how long, O oh Lord, holy and true, before you avenge our blood? Vengeance is what they pray for in heaven. And so he, in the face of this trauma, he says, God is my fortress. He's my rock. He's my refuge. And he will certainly, he goes on and concludes, repay them for their sins. It's harsh in many ways to modern ears. But our ears are not tuned right. They're not tuned to the story of Israel. What would the alternative be? We've talked about this here quite a bit. The alternative would be a world in where God does not act to eliminate evil. That he never takes decisive action to uphold the moral order. The psalmist doesn't think that's going to be the the last word. And so you have this God. He's all glorious in light and goodness and integrity. But he is the God of vengeances. 
And he's nothing less than the ground of our hope. In, in the creed, which we and which all of God's inheritance confess weekly, we affirm this. He shall come again in glory. Paraphrase, he shall shine forth. He shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He shall render vengeance. And without that line in the creed, without that end, without that rectifying justice, the rest of the creed is meaningless. Think about that. Take that line out of the Apostles' Creed. You can throw the rest of it away. That confession is identical to the opening of this text. O God who avenges, shine forth. I want to make three brief points to keep in mind as I close, and I'll be brief, about, about stuff we should remember when we consider a text like this. First, I want to remind you, and we've said this before, the text and all of Scripture forbid us from taking personal vengeance. Vengeance is not our prerogative. In fact, Paul, following Jesus, and this was the, the New Testament lesson this morning, tells us to show kindness to our enemies. Precisely to leave room, he says, for the vengeance of God. And then Paul cites Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It is the reality of God's vengeance at the end of history that enables us to renounce vengeance in the middle of history. And we've said that before, but that's very, very important. We are not God, and we cannot do what the psalmist cries out for in the text. But it's precisely because that's the case that we pray. Second, this text, vengeance is mine, I will repay, is used in the New Testament one other place. And that's Hebrews 10. And this is very important. It's used there as a warning. Not to corrupt governments, but it's used there as a warning to you and me, to the church. And it's a warning for us not to drift away into apostasy and unbelief. Because, beloved, when justice is delayed, we stray. It leads many to stray. When we suffer long, when prayer is unanswered, when vengeance doesn't appear, we drift. And the book of Hebrews there is, to, is there now speaks to the church and says, listen, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I know you're tempted, Hebrew Christians, to abandon the faith for an easier road. Don't do it. Don't do it. So we, it turns out we can't read the psalm merely as those who are like detached observers who can avoid this, this vengeance, this purifying justice. After all, judgment begins with the house of God. It began with Israel and it will begin with the church. And this is the third point then. We have to read this text and the law that it calls us to read. We have to read it with humility and cling to God, our teacher. Notice, you know, blessed is the one you instruct, you teach out of your law. God is saying to you in the midst of your agony, let me uphold you. Let me help you. Let me give you relief. Let me teach you until a pit is dug for the wicked. Let me support you. 
Let me console you with my unfailing love. And where you will find that is if you let me instruct you out of my law. Sometimes the reason that we lack the kind of comfort and consolation we should have is rather obvious. It's we've not gone to the fountain of consolation, which is the God who speaks to us in Holy Scripture. And so as we wait for the day of vengeance, we wait for the voice of God in his law. Pray the text. Pray the text. If not for yourself, pray it for the church. So it's in Scripture then. It's in Scripture that God becomes our rock and our fortress and our consolation. And it's there that he teaches us to cry out, O God who avenges, shine forth. Amen.